going to ask you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 today. Uh, we will be going through Luke chapter 1. I'm going to try and get as much in because I think there's so much truth. It's, it's funny to get at the truth. We're going to fly over some, key, uh, some sections of Luke 1, but uh, really want to focus in. I've entitled this Today's message, I've entitled this message, From Revelation to Exaltation. And uh, we're going to take a look at one of the central figures <clears throat> in the story of the Lord's birth, particularly our Lord's mother, Mary. Um, last week, we looked at the prophetic word, the, the promise of his coming. And we looked at two prophecies specifically in the, the book of Isaiah. We looked at Isaiah 7, 14, and we looked at Isaiah 9. We looked at verse 2 and verses 6 through 7. And Isaiah 14, uh, 7, 14, we saw that Isaiah the prophet prophesies of a very special child that's going to come. He says of this child that this child's going to be born of a virgin. As a matter of fact, he gives the, the child a name, which is really a title, and that name is Emmanuel, God with us. And so we see from the prophet Isaiah that one is going to come, one is going to come that's going to be born of a virgin that is definitely going to be distinct from any other child ever born in history. No one would even dare to put a name of Emmanuel, God with us. We then went to Isaiah 9.6. And Isaiah 9.6 expounded upon Isaiah 7.14. And we saw in Isaiah 9.6 that more information regarding this child. We learned several critical things. Number one, that the government was going to be upon his shoulders and that he will have a royal lineage, a royal heritage, a royal bloodline to the line of David. And in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, the prophet speaks of the unique titles of this child. He's called Wonderful. He's called Counselor. By the way, just food for thought. Remember the story of Jacob when he wrestles with the angel and they wrestle all night and then in the morning the angel says, hey, I have to go. You got to let me go. He said, I will not let thee go until you bless me. And he asks what his name is. You remember what the name that that angel of the Lord said his name was? Wonderful. Isaiah 9, 6. This child will be named Wonderful. Counselor. The Mighty God. Now there is a title that is unambiguous, the mighty God. Who might this be? The mighty God? 
He calls him the everlasting father, as I shared with you last week, as it should rightly be rendered. The father of eternity. The father of eternity. He calls him the prince of peace. And he goes on to state that there's not going to be an end to his government, that his, his reign is going to be an eternal reign. And that God himself will bring this about. And I submit to you today that the birth of Christ, and I shared this with you last week, the promise of his coming and his birth changes everything. It changes everything. The entire landscape has been changed. All who come to the saving knowledge of this special child who grew up to be a man, who was crucified on a cross, who gave himself willingly, who took upon himself the punishment of sin for all who put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus, who bore it willingly, who bore it gladly upon the cross, who was beaten, who suffered, who was mocked, who was ridiculed, who was rejected by men, who was just like us, tempted in all ways yet without sin, who died a human physical death, who was placed in the tomb, who on the third day physically rose from the dead, physically rose from the dead, still bearing the scars of the nail prints, still bearing the scars of the thorns upon him, still bearing the scars of the lashes and the beatings that he took, that all who place, put, put their faith and trust in him, yes, sir. as the apostle John says, <laughs> shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And by the way, I mentioned this on our Tuesday night Bible study. When you see in the Bible eternal life, when you see in the Bible everlasting life, it does not merely mean continuity of life. It doesn't mean that, you know, here on earth you die at 70, 80, 90, but in eternity, you know, you keep going. It means eternal life with God. God is is life. Christ is life. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. John, when he saw Christ, said, in him is life. And so we saw the prophecy of Christ. And now what we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 1 is the realization of that prophecy. I had mentioned to you that Isaiah's prophecies were on an estimate 700 years before the birth of Christ. 700 years. And now what we're going to take a look at in our text here is the actual fulfillment of those prophecies. Now... In order to do this, I just want to, if you allow me a few minutes, I want to give you some historical background. What is taking place at this time? You know, the estimated date of this visitation of Mary is about 5 B.C. 
As a matter of fact, some people actually take it down to November 5th, 5 B.C. But it's about 5 B.C. Mary is estimated to be anywhere from 14 to 16 years old. Right? Nope, there's nothing, and I want you to note this. There is nothing inherently good within Mary. She had an earthly mother and father. And because she had an earthly mother and father, she too was a victim of the fall. She too was under the curse. So there's nothing inherently special about Mary. She's not immaculate. She is not sinless. She is not without sin. She was just a woman, a woman that was chosen by God to bear the Savior into the world. We'll see from the text that Mary was indeed very, very humble. She was poor. She definitely was God-fearing, no doubt about that. Mary was a God-fearing woman at that time. And Mary was committed. She was espoused to be married to Joseph. Now, I don't have a lot of time to process this, but there were three stages to the marriage process back then. Stage one, the parents came together and made a determination, right? Oh, my son Joseph is going to marry your daughter Mary. And there was a dowry that was paid for that, and it was arranged. And it was usually arranged when they were very small, right? Then there was a period of espousal. We liken it to engagement. However, it was much more than engagement because in an espousal, the husband and the wife are already committed. This is a legal process. In the eyes of Jewish law, they were legally married. However, the marriage was not consummated. They did not live together. The marriage was not consummated. This is where Mary is right now. She is espoused. They would have a formal ceremony for the espousal. She was espoused, but then what happened? They both went back to their home. The bridegroom went to his home and the bride. Several months later would be the marriage, and we see a lot of that. If, um, for those of you on Tuesday night when we covered Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins, right? And the marriage process would be that the bridegroom, the bridegroom would leave his house with a procession and he would have his guys with him and all the others and they would have a big uh, procession and the procession would lead to the house of the bride, right? Many times it took place at night. You see in Matthew 25, right? They have the, they're carrying the lamps, right? In case it's dark. He would take his bride, bring her back to his new home that he prepared for her, and then the formal wedding feast, which would take sometime days, even as much as a week, would take place, and the marriage would then be consummated. They would now live together as husband and wife. Mary, uh, in keeping with a good Jewish upbringing with a fear of God and a fear of the law was indeed a virgin. And we're going to see that in our text. 
Mary was courageous and humble. And we're going to see that also in our text. And she was willing for whatever God had determined, whatever God had done, she was willing for this to take place in her life. So this is the background to Mary. Now the background to Israel. What was going on in Israel at the time? The nation of Israel was under Roman occupation. And they had been under Roman occupation for over a hundred years. And because Israel had sinned, it had repeatedly sinned going way back. Israel had continually for centuries been under foreign occupation. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians came in and invaded the ten northern tribes, which, is the, uh, which was the northern kingdom, and overtook them. So they, they moved into the land. In 586 uh, B.C., the southern kingdom, which was Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom gets invaded by the Babylonians. The Babylonians come in. They ransack Jerusalem. They take a bunch of captives away. This is when we read the book of Daniel at the very beginning, and his friends were taken away in the Babylonian captivity. The temple is ransacked. Following the Babylonians came the Medo-Persian Empire. And if you read the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is sitting under, under one of the Persian kings. And the Persians now occupy Israel. After the Persians, you have the Greeks. Alexander the Great comes in and conquers the Middle East. This is where you see in the book of Acts where it says, there arose a dissension among the Hellenistic Jews where Greek culture, Greek language now comes into the Jewish culture. And the Greeks occupy them. And then after the Greeks came the biggest, perhaps the baddest, the toughest empire of them all, the Romans. Notice how many centuries, since 722 B.C., they were under foreign occupation. And the Jewish people hated being under foreign occupation. As a matter of fact, the, the Romans thought, okay, well, let's give them a king. That'll do it. We'll give him a king. So you guys heard of Herod? Herod the Great? Herod the Great comes to be a king. There's one problem. He's not a Jew. He's an Idumean. And Herod the Great is despised because the Jewish people see him exactly what he is. He's a proxy king. He's a puppet king. And they despised him. So Herod comes up with a great idea. Herod says, in order to appease the Jewish people, I am going to rebuild the temple. And so he begins construction of the temple in Jerusalem in 20 B.C. And he begins what is considered one of the eight great wonders of the world at the time. And the Jews are thrilled, but they also realize we're thrilled because we're going to get a temple out of this deal, but they're not thrilled with Herod. It will take from 20 B.C. to 64 A.D. for the temple to be finished. 
only to be destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. So Israel is in silent years. For 400 years, no prophet has ever spoken in Israel. And now, an angel visits a 14 to 16-year-old girl and is going to give her word that is going to change history right there. Look at your Bibles at Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And here we see the revelation to Mary. And I want you to, I want you to know three things. We're going to see three things right here. One, there's going to be Mary's revelation. Secondly, there's going to be Mary's humiliation. And thirdly, we're going to see Mary's exaltation. Let's take a look at Mary's revelation. Luke 1, beginning with verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee, called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose, uh, whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. Look at this amazing revelation that the angel Gabriel gives to this young, young girl. It's rather interesting. In the name Gabriel, the angel means God is my strength. He's only one of two angels in the Bible that have been named, right? And he comes to her, and right away from the beginning of the text here, we begin to see the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14 that we saw last week. Notice what verse 20 says. It says the angel Gabriel came to what? To a virgin engaged to a man, uh, a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Right away we see the, the fulfillment there. Isaiah 7, 14, For behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. 
And I told you at times there's been controversy over the term virgin because many people, more of the liberal theologians, would say that, well, that just means a young girl. But the whole point of Isaiah 7.14 is that this will be a sign unto you. There would have been nothing miraculous. There would have been nothing of a sign if an ordinary young girl had a child. But the sign is the fact that she will be a virgin. And by the way, Luke makes this very clear in verse 7. It is to a virgin engaged to a man whose name is Joseph. And by the way, just so you understand, if you turn over to verse 1 of Luke chapter 1, listen to the words. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as uh, those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write out for you in consecutive order most excellent Theophilus so that you might know the exact truth about the things which you have been taught. What's the point? Luke investigated. Luke interviewed. Luke spoke to the eyewitnesses of these events. And it is believed that this account is a result of Luke's interview with Mary. Luke's conversations with the mother of Jesus. So we see right at the beginning, there is a fulfillment of the prophecy. And notice he comes in and he says to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, if, if it were, as some suggest, that Mary was divine in origin, that Mary was immaculately conceived, that Mary is a co-redemptress with Christ, then the following verse wouldn't make sense, would it? Verse 29, notice Mary's response to the greeting from the angel. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. Mary, upon hearing these things, goes back and goes, what are you talking about, favored one? I, I, I could just see Mary, she'd probably turn around and say, you're talking to me? I'm the favored one? And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That is a wonderful statement that it would be said about all of us that, Mike, you have found favor with God, that, Janet, you would have found favor with God. And simply put, all that simply means is that you have found grace with God. See, it was nothing about Mary. It was all about God. And God dispositioned his grace toward Mary. God streamed grace toward Mary. God said, I'm going to take this humble young girl and I'm going to stupefy the world through her. I am going to cause the world to go, what are you talking about? Now, Mary did have something in it that was very important. Mary's heritage was of the royal line of David. So this isn't just mere coincidence, mere accident. 
Oh, God shows this virgin of the royal line because Christ must come from the royal line of David. And notice what he tells her. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will, now notice this, he says, He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. There it is again, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, being fulfilled right in the promise. Notice the titles, he says, of this son, he's going to be great, right? And will be called the Son of the Most High. The Most High was a Jewish term for describing God. He is going to be the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. There it is. Fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, as was prophesied in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Amen, brother. Amen. Now Mary's taking all of this in. It's coming fast. She's overwhelmed. Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How can this be? Since I am a virgin, or as the King James says it, how shall this be? For I know not a man. I don't, I've not been intimate with a man. You're telling me I'm going to have a son, but yet I, I haven't been with a man. And the angel proceeds to tell her in verse 35. And the angel answered, and the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Here is the startling revelation to Mary. The startling revelation. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon me? The power of God is going to descend upon me? And the angel tells her in verse 36, And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has conceived the son in her old age. And she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. It's almost as if the angel has said, You ain't seen nothing. Elizabeth, you know, you're, and it's estimated that Elizabeth was probably between 60 to 80 years old at the time of her conception. So, you know, your cousin, the one that never had any kids, here, I got a bulletin for you. She's already with child. She's already with child. She's in her sixth month. And he goes on in verse 7, and this is what I really want you to focus on here at the Revelation. The angel declares, and I, I want us all to get this. The angel declares, nothing is impossible with God. 
So many times in our lives, we have moments of revelation. So many times in our life, God brings something new into our life that we have difficulty understanding its reasons. We have difficulty even comprehending its blessings. We don't know how it's going to play out. God calls us to do something. It could be something financial. It could be something spiritual. It could be entering into a a new service of worship where God calls us. And we, in our human inclination, naturally begin to think, how can this be? It makes no sense. But we must remember, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible. You know, we need to be retrained. There has been so much stuff that has been sown into the church, so much pragmatism that's been sown into the church that we, we, we take part of the Word of God and we take part of faith and we, we apprehend part of the Holy Spirit and then we try to reconcile it out. But there are many times when God does not simply outright make sense to us. And that by faith, we must move forward in faith. Mary receives this this unbelievable word. She receives this unbelievable revelation from the angel Gabriel. And here's one of the greatest parts of this is we see Mary's humiliation look at verse 38 and mary said i can't do this right and mary said wait a second i'm not married and mary said i don't think i have the courage i don't think i have the strength I don't think I have the faith to do this. Is that what the Word of God says? No, what does Mary say? Behold the bond slave of the Lord. Be it done to me according to your word. And at that, the angel is satisfied and the angel departed. Look at this. this. We see Mary's humility right here. What a beautiful response of faith. By Mary to the angel's announcement. We see in Mary both availability and obedience in her response. All brought about by faith and love for God. Note her availability. Note this. Behold the bond slave of the Lord. Here we see Mary's true humility that first word behold means to call attention to to stand out it is to call attention to what's going to follow so behold is behold what follows next the bond slave of the lord that word in the greek for bond slave is doulos and it means an actual slave, a piece of property, one that has been purchased. That's what that means. 
So notice her availability to the Lord. Behold the bond slave of the Lord. Consider some of the things that lay in front of Mary as she made that statement. I want you to think about this. First, there is definitely going to be reproach. It's not 2022 where having a, a child out of wedlock's no biggie. This, the law was very specific. A woman who has been proven to be found in fornication was to be stoned. That's a biggie. That's a problem. Because she knows after a little bit there's going to be a a belly that's going to stick out. That's a big deal. Right? You can't hide that one. You can't eat that much pie to convince everybody that you're really fat. So that's the first one. Being an unwed mother in those circumstances did not exist. And if it did exist, if they did have mercy, they would put you away. You'd go out somewhere in the wilderness. Yes, sir. That's number one. This sin was punishable by stoning. Yes, number two, she's already espoused. How's Joseph going to react? Is Joseph going to bring her before the priest and bring her before the temple and say she's been unfaithful to me and now let the law do what the law does? Or is Joseph going to have mercy on her? Is Joseph going to say, we got to figure out a way out of this. Maybe I'll, I'll put you away. As a matter of fact, we know from Matthew's account of the gospel That that's exactly what was running through Joseph's mind. He didn't want to dishonor her. He didn't want to see her be killed. But he thought he'd get a certificate of divorce and he just put her away quietly. Which, by the way, shows something, right? It shows that Joseph had a genuine love for Mary. He had a genuine love for her. And that was another question. Would he still love her? Would he still love her? Will she have to raise this child alone? So in her availability, Mary's response seems very reminiscent of other people who are faced these some uh, situations, not necessarily, you know, raising a child alone, but some tough things. I think about Abraham. You know, God appeared to him and said, hey, get up from her, the Chaldeos, I'm going to, I'm going to take you to a city whose foundation and builder is God. He never knew where he was going. He just followed the voice of the Lord. I think about Moses, who after being exiled and tending sheep for 40 years, God appears to him and says, hey, you're the one that I want you to bring my children out. Moses did his best to argue with God, but that didn't work out too well. I think about Gideon. In Judges chapter 6, very similar greeting, right? Hail, mighty warrior. Meanwhile, Gideon's trying to store up information because he knows an invasion's coming, and he's like, who are you talking to, mighty warrior, right? But God used Gideon as a deliverer. I think about David. 
But one that really sticks out to me is the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah. Because he has a very similar response. You don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah chapter 6, you know the story. Isaiah goes into the temple. He sees the Lord high and exalted and lifted up, right? He says, woe is me, for I am a man undone. He has seen the living God. He has seen the holiness of God. He reconciled it to his sinfulness. And he's like, this is it. I'm done. I've seen the holiness of God. In an Isaiah 6, 8, a voice comes out of the throne and it says this, Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now remember, Isaiah previously said, Woe is me, I'm a man undone, for I live among a profane people. I'm a man of profane lips. He saw his unworthiness. He saw his filthiness. But he saw the glory of God. And when the voice comes out, he cries out, who will go? Who will send? Isaiah shows his availability, and he says, here am I, Lord. Send me. Send me. Likewise, church, we see in this text the response of a woman who, despite the odds being stacked against her, is willing to trust God at his word and willing to submit with complete humility and complete obedience to God notice the second part of verse 38 first she says behold the bond slave of the Lord and here we see her obedience be it done to me according to your word And you know what? That's all the angel Gabriel needed. Job done. And she submits herself. Mary's response changes all history. It changes all history. By faith, allowing herself to be used as a vessel for God, for God's glory, she considers the cost. Notice, she considered the cost. And despite the cost, she still trusts God. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Are you convicted of the things that you do not see? Are you convicted? Are you firm? Are you resolute? in that God is real, that the power of the Holy Ghost is real, that nothing is impossible with God, that despite your circumstances, no matter how bleak, no matter how terrifying they may be, God will work it for good if you love the Lord and if you are called according to his purpose. Of Abraham, in Romans chapter 4, 11, Paul writes this, speaking of Abraham, in hope against hope, he believed. I love that. In hope against hope. In other words, the promise of God is that hope. Against that hope is all the physical things that are testifying to me why this can't be. In hope against hope, Abraham believed. 
in order that he might become the father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. God had promised Abraham, you're going to have a child. Your descendants are going to be as the sands of the sea. Your descendants are going to be as the stars in the sky. And Abraham goes from 60, 70, 80, 90, starts beginning to push up on 100. And in hope against hope, he believed. As a matter of fact, verse 20 says this, Yet, with respect to the promise of God, notice what it says about Abraham, yet with the respect of the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but instead grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Church, there are times in our lives when God presents us with opportunities of faith, opportunities of service. There is always a cost associated with it. And it will involve sacrifice. And it will involve inconvenience. It may involve ridicule. It may involve rejection of friends, family, people that you love. Yes, it can involve risk in terms of risk to your life. I think of our sister Dawn Small who is in the Ukraine right now ministering to Christians in the Ukraine right now. She did that contemplating the risk and knowing fully well. I don't know how this story ends. And continue to pray for her, by the way. She is due back on, I think, in the United States on Christmas Eve. And the entire world could testify against you that what you're considering is wrong. It doesn't reconcile. It doesn't add up. How do we respond? Do we respond like Mary and say, Lord, I humble myself before God. I'm here. Do it to me exactly as your word says. Mary responded with deep humility, placing her faith in the promises of God. And I believe that verse 37 played a really important role in that when the angel said to her, Mary, nothing is impossible with God. And I believe that Mary took that at face value. And I believe Mary said, I'm talking to an angel. It's got to be true. And so we see Mary's humiliation. But you know what? It's easy to think that maybe, okay, maybe Mary acquiesced, but she acquiesced out of fear. Maybe she was like, oh, I know this is not going to have a good ending. But we see one more thing here in Luke chapter 1, and this is the exaltation of Mary, and I want you to see this. Look at Luke 1, verses 46 to 55. Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. I wonder if she went, I got to check this out. She's pregnant, right? She goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth sees her, and what happens? The baby inside her jumps, it leaps. Who's that baby? John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. The baby leaps inside the womb. And Elizabeth, notice of verse um, 
Verse 41, and it came about when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in the womb, and Elizabeth was, notice this, filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did she do? Jump up and down, run around the room, do jumping jacks? That's not what she does. She gives an utterance of praise to God. Look what she said, and she cried out with a loud voice. I love that because you see that so often when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They cry out with a loud voice. And she cries out with a loud voice and says, Blessed blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Now, chances are Elizabeth had a little bit more advanced theological training because her husband was a priest, Zacharias. But look at what Mary says here, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And I want to stop right there. Here we see Mary's exaltation. This is not a woman who is fearing. This is not a woman who doesn't have faith. This isn't a woman who's saying, okay, I'll go along for the ride, but my heart is not really in this. Mary's exaltation is to none other than the Lord God himself. And I love it. Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit rejoiced in God my Savior. Now, this is significant. Don't miss this. Notice those last words, in God my Savior. Mary was a child of the fall. Mary was born into sin. Mary needed a Savior. And by the way, Just to be clear, that Savior is Jesus Christ. Mary didn't have that virtue in and of herself. Mary was not conceived sinless, as some churches tell. Instead, Mary needed a Savior, and right off the bat, she proclaims that in verses 46 and 47. Her response is is so succinct. She says her heart exalts, and that means to declare, to declare great things, that it's used of speaking of God. I exalt in God. And she rejoiced. She celebrated. She's glad. She's overflowing with joy. That's what exalt means. It doesn't mean to do this. It means, whoa, whoa. I rejoice in God. Mary begins to sing the praises of God, which tells us where her affections lie, does it not? Her heart is full of God, full of his praises, full 
of grace, full of his love. Imagine the scene. How great would that have been to be there? Here comes Elizabeth, full of the Holy Spirit, praising God. Here comes Mary, not saying, yeah, I'm the blessed woman, you know. Mary says, my heart exalts in God. I rejoice in God. Look what she goes on to say in verses 48 and 49. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. There she is again. She knows completely where she stands with God. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. And behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Why would they count her blessed? Because she was the chosen vehicle of God to bring the Savior into the world. That's it, for no other reason. She was humble, she was obedient, she was available. And God uses her to bring the Savior into the world. Notice who, the, who gets the glory here. Look at verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And just to add a little bit of emphasis, what does she say? Holy is his name. So, this is so glorious. Mary states that God has had regard or he looked upon her with his favor. See, sometimes that gets misaligned. They say God looked at Mary for her favor, but it's not. God looked at Mary with his favor upon her, his grace. And she states that she will be considered blessed because of the grace and the favor of God has been poured out upon her by bearing the God-man Jesus Christ into the world. This whole song of Mary, by the way, we don't have time to cover it all, but this whole song of Mary reveals that she was a woman of faith and a woman of the word. There's Old Testament references throughout, all the way from 46 to 55. It's just wonderful. Her, her song is filled with the praises of God, with the praises of God's faithfulness and the praises of God's word. So here's, so what do we do with this information? What do we do with it, right? So big deal. I got the history lesson, Mark. Sounds great. There are two significant characteristics of Mary that I personally take away from this text, and I hope you do too. First, there is her humility or her humbleness. Mary did not think more of herself she was humble at the news of the angel. Although she asked a good question as to how this will happen, she remained humbled before the angel to the point of declaring her submission. How do, how do I compare to that humility? How do we compare to that humility? We live in a culture and we live in a generation where we are self Absorbed. That's what we are. We're self-absorbed. 
where the world screams to us, it screams to us about being content, about finding ourselves, about being self-fulfilled, you know, to love ourselves, to learn to forgive ourselves, and, and to look out for number one. Isn't that our culture today? It's our culture. But true faith in Christ counters all those objectives. It counters all of it. True faith in Christ is to humble ourselves before God. As James 4, 6 tells us, he says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Faith in Christ calls us to esteem others as better than ourselves. And that our lives are not our own, but they're Christ. Even our Lord tells us, whoever whoever desires to exalt himself shall be humbled, and whoever is humbled shall be exalted. We need believers to follow the example of Mary, of our Lord Jesus Christ, to humble ourselves in the sight of God. Proverbs 29, 23 says this, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain favor. There is a second point. We note Mary's song of exaltation to the Lord. And we need as a people to exalt God more and more. To exalt God with exuberance. We need to exalt God. I'm not talking about emotionalism. I'm talking about that which is derived from inside your spirit. That you are overjoyed with Christ. This is a byproduct, by the way, of humility before God. That's what it is. And when we have a right walk before God, when we're humble before God, before our fellow brothers and sisters, we will recognize his beauty before us. And you know what? When we recognize his beauty, hence we will be able to sing, and hence we will be able to praise God. Listen to the word of God. Psalm 33, 1. Sing for joy in the Lord. O you righteous ones, praise is becoming of the upright. Psalm 92, 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and sing praises to thy name, O Most High. Psalm 135, 3. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. It's lovely. Churches, I pray that our hearts would rejoice in song and worship before our God. Not merely in the church, but in every moment of every day before the Lord. Do you not have enough time to praise God and worship God? Mary knew this, and so did many others in the faith. And my heart is that we would come to know this. That as God took Mary from revelation to humiliation to exaltation, that the Lord would do likewise for us. And as we remember and celebrate the coming of our Savior at this time of year, listen, let us commit ourselves to humility and to exaltation before God. Let us not omit God at this time of year due to selfish busyness, but let us sing the praises of God before an unbelieving world.
And what a great time of year to be able to do this. Bow with me in a word of prayer.